0: The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network, Buzz Burbank, news incoming The posse should be here any minute now. Welcome to this early edition recorded and published on Wednesday, April 17th, 2019. And thank you for supporting independent news by patronizing my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. In a cowboy movie or a TV western, this is the part where the sheriff rides in with his posse, rounds up the bad guys, and puts an end to the lawlessness. Whether help for this scandal-ridden town is on its way is unclear, but the need for it to arrive is immediate. With a large chunk of the public complicit in the scandals, and an even larger chunk tuning them out, the Trump agenda of hatred and deception gallops on, riding on a horse called Fox News. In this past week, the president who's tried to hide his tax returns and the Mueller report reportedly encouraged the Border Patrol chief to break the law, offering a presidential pardon if he got nailed for it. The week before, he'd instructed border agents to defy court orders to accept asylum seekers and to lie to the judges, uh, to the judges that there was no room for your tired and your poor. He's also been firing people for reportedly refusing to break the law on his behalf. He's talked again about closing the border, which would be a gut punch to the U.S. economy and something he'd said only days before he would delay for a year. He's threatened political revenge on the cities that didn't vote for him and a few that did by dumping on them the care of the migrants he's been unable to stop, a wave of migrants caused partly by his own tough guy policies. In the past week, the hatred spread again to Muslims as he found a target in an outspoken Minnesota congresswoman. The deception is the lie that everyone in the world knows is a lie, that he knows nothing about WikiLeaks after invoking its name, usually with praise, nearly 150 times recorded in public. Just yesterday, he vetoed ending American support for the Saudi military campaign in Yemen. Congress passed that bill specifically to punish the Saudis for the government-ordered murder of U.S. journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Trump's veto has him continuing to defend the Saudi crown prince who ordered Khashoggi's murder. Trump says the veto was because Congress was trying to exercise authority that only he has as president. Trump's nominee for the Federal Reserve Board has said he's, quote, not a big believer in democracy. While the president of the United States accuses U.S. intelligence, law enforcement, and journalism of treason, while raising more 2020 campaign money than any of his score of Democratic challengers. And all of that just in the past week. Like watching an old TV western, it feels as though we're 45 minutes into this one-hour drama. This feels like the part where the sheriff and his men ride back into town to restore law and order and put the bad guys in jail. Any minute now. A redacted Mueller report after 26 days under lock and key of Attorney General William Barr is finally being released. Because Mueller's report is due to drop Thursday morning at the same time this program would normally be produced, it would have made this weekly look at the news instantly outdated. Whatever the report says could not have been presented properly without time to carefully scan what hasn't been redacted and to estimate what might have been obscured and how much was blocked from view with a rainbow of colorful stripes, we're told, for each of the four categories of redaction. Then comes the analysis of what we can see. Once I've completed that, I'll put together a special edition of this program and have it to you as soon as possible, so please keep an eye on your downloads and social media. If all goes as planned, that special edition should drop Friday afternoon. What we do expect to see in the Mueller report are the one page summaries of each aspect of the investigation. These summaries were written by the lead investigators on every aspect of the Mueller probe, and the Mueller team recently leaked that those summaries were written to be read by the public unredacted. That raises the question why have those parts of the Mueller report been under lock and key for the better part of a month? In normal times, there are certain things we would expect not to see. We would not expect to see national security information or information related to ongoing investigations or anything that would expose how law enforcement does its work and where it gets its information. But these are not normal times. What we will not see also are the names of individuals who may have done some shady stuff but were not criminally charged. Not being criminally charged doesn't mean a person is innocent, it often means there just wasn't enough evidence or that a jury would never go along or that they just weren't worth the trouble and expense. So we won't see those names and we may not even see what they have done. And we won't see whatever the still thriving Mueller grand juries are up to. Just because the Mueller report is written doesn't mean the investigation's over. On the contrary, the Mueller probe has set off no fewer than 20 federal and state investigations and his grand juries remain busy. Still, there is a legal precedent for grand jury material to be given to Congress, as well as that sensitive national security and law enforcement information. Since my last wrap-up, we've heard rumbles that the Mueller report may be heavily redacted when its 380 pages land on our laps tomorrow. As I said last week, even a heavily redacted report may reveal a lot. It will likely be damaging to the president. Regardless of whether the report is heavily or lightly redacted, you can expect instant subpoenas from House Democrats. The president believes the report will completely exonerate him because that's what he thinks Bill Barr said in his summary. White House aides are reportedly worried that even if the report is not politically damaging, it will be personally embarrassing for Trump. Stay tuned. As we prepare to read the Mueller Report as redacted by William Barr, we're being reminded of Mueller's track record on these sorts of things. NYU professor Ryan Goodman is a former Defense Department lawyer who founded a specialty news website called Just Security. This week, Goodman wrote about a memo from William Barr, who in 1989 ran the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel. New President George H.W. Bush at the time was already mired in a foreign policy mess in Panama, and it was his Justice Department, specifically legal counsel William Barr, announcing it would be legal to send FBI agents into Panama without its permission to arrest its dictator, Manuel Noriega. Noriega was indeed wanted by the U.S. for domestic crimes here, but there were a lot of raised eyebrows about sending U.S. law enforcement into a foreign country to arrest its Presidente. Congress wanted to see the whole legal opinion that had been written by the Justice Department lawyers, but Barr told them he wouldn't let them see it. Instead, he gave them what he called a summary of the principal conclusions of what the Justice Department lawyers had written. A summary of the principal conclusions, of course, is what Barr offered lawmakers and the rest of us several days after the report was turned in. And now, as in 1989, William P. Barr wouldn't let anyone see the rest of it. Back then, it took nearly two years for Congress to issue a subpoena for that complete legal opinion. Once they got their hands on it, they learned that Barr had not only hidden the truth, he had misled lawmakers about what the truth was in those written opinions. William Barr lied about what was in that report and left his job before the truth could finally be seen. It's funny he would pop up again all these years later just in time to redact the Mueller report. But this time is different and even William Barr knows it. He may not be able to get out of Dodge fast enough. This time the congressional subpoenas are approved already and ready to be issued. They're expected to be issued the moment Bill Barr's redacted Mueller report lands on congressional desks. Newsweek's Christina Maza reported this week that William Barr once worked for a law firm that represented Russia's Alpha Bank. He also worked for a company whose founders have allegedly long-standing business ties to Russia, and he's been paid dividends from Vector Group, a holding company with deep financial roots in Russia. Even if there were nothing to see here, even if none of that meant anything, it's a conflict of interest not about actual conflict. It's about the appearance of conflict that ethical lawyers are careful to avoid. It's the kind of conflict that would, in normal times, prompt an attorney general to, wait for it, recuse himself from the investigation, a promise Barr refused to make in his confirmation hearings. And then there's Barr's six-figure assets in, wait again, Deutsche Bank, Trump's bank, the one heavily fined for laundering Russian money, the only bank that would do business with Donald Trump. Legal experts say if there were ever a case for recusal, William Barr is in charge of it. Even a federal judge this week declared that William P. Barr has eroded trust in the United States Department of Justice in his short time on the job. Quoting Federal District Judge Reggie Walton, the attorney general has created an environment that has caused a significant part of the public to be concerned about whether or not there is full transparency. Judge Walton was appointed by George W. Bush and he was speaking during a hearing yesterday on a lawsuit to release the entire Mueller report. News outlets are using the Freedom of Information Act as the basis for their lawsuit so there is more than one effort underway to get the whole and it is ongoing. One way or another the complete Mueller report will come out just as did the Star report on Bill Clinton and others just without this fight. Attorney General William Barr knows this. He also must know that this time the truth will come out much faster than the truth he tried to hide in 1989. Stay tuned. Trump's temptation to abuse power and his disregard for the law fell even more clearly into public view this week. At the top of the heap, his apparent offer to pardon his new Customs and Border Protection Commissioner should he get thrown in jail for breaking immigration laws so long as it stops the migrants. CNN has two sources for this story, despite Trump and CPB denials in carefully worded responses. At no time did Trump order or even urge new border chief Kevin McAleenan to break the law. He just said that, should that occur, I've got you covered. Just saying. Just saying's not illegal, is it? Now Trump's new Attorney General William Barr has issued a decision reversing U.S. policy on people seeking asylum from persecution or torture in their home countries. Barr says they may be held in U.S. jails for as long as it takes for their cases to come up. The wait is often more than a year. Previous policy allowed the asylum seekers freedom until their cases came up, a policy misleadingly called catch and release. Trump hates that policy. He calls asylum a big fat con job. Trump hired William Barr. William Barr stopped a thing Trump hates, storing asylum seekers in jails instead, and this time with no bail and with no plans for their children. The idea, of course, is to deter asylum seekers from entering the country, which disregards what we have done for decades in accordance with our laws and with international laws. But Trump doesn't like a lot of laws. He does seem to like the cruelty. The new policy, which doesn't go into effect for another 90 days, is being challenged in court, and the new policy will likely be overturned. Kevin McAleenan has been promoted from running just border protection to running the entire Department of Homeland Security as its new acting secretary. And Just before getting that job, Trump reportedly urged McAleenan to close the southwestern border to migrants, despite saying just days earlier, He had put off that move for another year. Former Homeland Security Secretary Kirstjen Nielsen had told Trump that closing the border would be illegal. She refused his order because it is illegal. That's when a frustrated Trump went to his border protection guy with this supposed offer of a pardon. One of CNN's sources says Trump was joking. The other isn't so sure. It was then that Trump fired Kirstjen Nielsen and gave Kevin McAleenan the job. Now, whether Trump realizes or not, he's chosen perhaps the most qualified person for that job, at least for now. This McAleenan looks like a guy who would be in charge of security with his military haircut and his dead serious attitude. He has years of practical experience in immigration, policy, laws, and enforcement. McAleenan is by training a lawyer. He's been honored by President Obama and respected by Democrats as well as Republicans. Whether Trump realizes it or not, he's hired a guy who plays by the book after firing his predecessor for playing by the book. He's hired a guy whose knowledge of immigration policy, immigration law, and immigration enforcement deals in reality. He's hired a guy who knows the importance of giving U.S. aid to Central American countries where violence and corruption have only added to the pain of poverty made worse by their crops being destroyed from climate change. He's hired a guy who strongly disagrees with the Trump policy of cutting off that aid and of breaking the law. There is some comfort in the presence of Kevin McAleenan as head of Homeland Security for as long as he can hang on. If Trump doesn't fire him first, there's still some question as to whether his appointment as acting Homeland Security Secretary was even legal. That job's normally filled by the Deputy Secretary, a position Trump still hasn't bothered to fill. The week before replacing the heads of Homeland Security and Border Protection, on a visit to San Antonio, Texas, the frustrated president threatened to, quote, call up more military to guard the border. But this week he'd moved on to funneling the latest wave of migrants directly into sanctuary cities, mostly to punish Democrats for something Democrats have not done, namely support open borders. We hereby demand, tweeted Trump to those sanctuary cities as if hereby demand were a long-standing but secret presidential power. No such legislation has been proposed or even discussed publicly by Democrats. They have, in fact, called for enhanced border security. What they've said they don't favor is Trump's hard-line policies starting with his wall. Sanctuary cities offer some safety for migrants. Some cities even welcome them. But to make those cities political targets, to stick those cities with the bill for Trump's failed immigration policies, is an attempt to use the power of the presidency to exact political revenge and abuse of power. The original plan was to send by bus people detained by immigration to small and mid-sized sanctuary cities, cities like Wichita, Kansas, for instance administratively, it would have been a logistical nightmare and the cost would be astronomical, especially considering most of those relocated would likely just hit the road for wherever they were headed in the first place. The idea was rejected by the White House as a political nightmare, but this week Trump floated it publicly, this time including Pelosi's district of San Francisco. One of our biggest sanctuary cities is San Francisco, home of Nancy Pelosi, whose office had this response to Trump's latest tweet, This administration's cynicism and cruelty cannot be overstated. Using human beings, including children, as pawns in their warped game to perpetuate fear and demonize immigrants is despicable and in some cases criminal. There's that word criminal again. As for the cruelty, the examples are endless, but the latest involves a 12-year-old girl named Evelyn Gonzalez Vieira of Phoenix, Arizona. Her mommy, Barbara Vieira, was killed while serving our country in Afghanistan. This week, Trump immigration officials hauled away her dad to Nogales, New Mexico, because he'd come to the U.S. without papers 15 years ago, spending the past eight years married to his dear departed Barbara. Thanks to the media, thanks to a free press, this travesty was exposed by the Arizona Republic newspaper. Daddy's back home in Phoenix now, for now, but he's still facing deportation. And the public and the press and Congress are still watching the cruel and the criminal. Although he does make the final decisions and reminds us regularly that he's in charge, Trump's most radical ideas for stopping immigration are not his and his alone. The architect of Trump's tough immigration policy is Stephen Miller, and Trump fires the people who get in Miller's way. Miller's said to have been key to Trump's failed zero-tolerance immigration policy. It's Miller's job to think of ways to carry out Trump's immigration wishes to cover the details the president can't be bothered with. It was Miller's idea to overturn the protections for migrant children that had been ordered in place by the courts it was a clash with Miller that led to the firing of the last border chief. It was Miller who told citizenship and immigration services to tighten up because he believes they've been too soft on people asking for asylum in the United States. Officials in that agency say they were just following the law as established by Congress, but following the law is not a popular notion for Trump or Stephen Miller. From closing the border to firing officials who disobey Trump by following the law, Stephen Miller began to get the spotlight as the brains behind the president's immigration policy, a spotlight Trump never tries to share. 33-year-old Stephen Miller, who has been described as a white nationalist, is helping to shape and enforce Trump's immigration policies, naysayers and laws be damned. Democrats are ready to call Stephen Miller to testify to answer some questions publicly and under oath about these policies, starting with the plan to dump asylum seekers into sanctuary cities. Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler told CNN, Steve Miller, who seems to be the boss of everybody on immigration, ought to come before Congress and explain. The head of the House Homeland Security Subcommittee says it's clear Miller's the one pulling the strings. He needs to come before the American people and explain. He has to be held accountable. Presidents whose top officials are facing a congressional grilling often claim executive privilege to get around that. If they defy a congressional call to testify, they can always be subpoenaed. In the George W. Bush administration, the man known as his architect, Karl Rove, resigned before the subpoena could be issued. Neither the White House nor Miller have said yet whether they would comply with a request for Stephen Miller to testify. All indications are they would not. When Democratic Congresswoman Elon Omar of Minnesota called out Miller for these immigration policies, she became a convenient target for Miller's boss. Trump tweeted an edited video of this U.S. Congresswoman over images of the 9 11 attacks. It bore the caption, We will never forget. Trump and others had taken serious offense to remarks by Omar that, out of context, seemed to minimize 9 11. Trump had found a person upon whom he could focus his anti Muslim policies and capitalize again on a fear of Muslims and to gin up hatred against them all. Congresswoman Omar, who'd gotten death threats before, saw their number increase dramatically after Trump's tweet. Every day there are threats based upon her religious faith. Security for the Congresswoman has been increased at taxpayers' expense. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's ordered a security assessment worried about the safety of one or more lawmakers inspired by Trump's tweet to try to connect a Muslim congresswoman to the 9-11 attacks. Pelosi also demanded that Trump delete that tweet, and of course he did not. Two weeks after threatening to shoot Omar, a Trump supporter in New York was arrested for a phony bomb threat to a building in Los Angeles where Omar was about to speak. The House Intelligence Committee wants to know if Trump's foreign business dealings have left him susceptible to foreign influence. That leads them to Deutsche Bank, the only bank in New York that would still lend money to Trump prior to his election as president. Deutsche Bank has said it will cooperate with investigators, but needed a subpoena to document that it only released someone's personal or corporate financial information because it had been subpoenaed. The banking secrecy laws require that. Deutsche Bank is also cooperating with the Attorney General of New York State, whose office is investigating Michael Cohen's claim that Trump exaggerated the size of his wealth to get tens of millions of dollars in Deutsche Bank loans. Meanwhile, over in the House Oversight Committee, Chairman Elijah Cummings is after more and different Trump financial records from his accounting firm, Mazars USA. Like Deutsche Bank, Mazars has asked for what's known as a friendly subpoena the subpoena the House Ways and Means Committee is preparing to send is not so friendly. The committee had set a deadline of April 10th for the White House to hand over Trump's tax returns, personal and business for the past six years. During the campaign, Trump had said publicly that not paying federal taxes, quote, makes me smart. The New York Times investigative team found that the Trump family has been involved in, quote, dubious tax schemes, including instances of fraud. After being called out as the first candidate, the first president in 40 years to refuse to release his tax returns, Trump repeatedly lied that he couldn't release his returns because they were under audit. Now he says they're too complicated for the public to understand and that Americans don't care if he releases them anyway. That too is a lie. Multiple polls show most Americans want those tax returns. In the latest polls, more than two thirds think he has a responsibility to and should. Release those documents. Lawyers for both the White House and the president have joined forces to resist the incoming shower of subpoenas. They say this is all about a predecided impeachment hearing in the House, and they will, in Rudy Giuliani's words, fight it tooth and nail, on every single subpoena, whether they be over the Mueller report or the hidden tax returns or an immigration policy. Two branches of government, executive and legislative, would then clash before the third, judicial branch. It'll be up to the courts, ultimately the Supreme Court, to decide which of the two battling branches are correct for each and every subpoena. This could take time, but it could also consume and virtually paralyze the remainder of Trump's presidency. Democratic presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke posted his tax returns for the past 10 years this week, as did fellow candidate Bernie Sanders, now revealed to be one of the millionaires he's railed against and still does. Sanders said as recently as Monday night the wealthy should pay more, which clearly now includes him. More about Sanders' Monday night comments in a moment. With one Republican challenger and 18 Democrats, Trump is raising more money than any single one of them, more than a few of them put together. Just in the first three months of this year, Trump raised over $30 million for his 2020 campaign, which began shortly after he was elected. The campaign now has about 41 million in the bank. The Republican National Committee, which has merged with the Trump campaign, brought in 46 million for Trump, its biggest haul ever for a first quarter in a non-election year. Among Democrats, Bernie Sanders is the top fundraiser in the first quarter with over $18 million, Kamala Harris is second with 12 million, Beto O'Rourke has over 9 million, and Pete Buttigieg kicked off his campaign with 8 million. Bernie has as much as Any four of the other Democratic candidates put together. Money, however, does not guarantee victory. Candidates who've raised and spent more than their opponents have gone down to defeat in the past and more than once. Money certainly helps, but it doesn't win elections. Votes win elections. So, what's the best way for a Democratic nominee to win those votes in 2020? A number of Democratic hopefuls have carefully torn a page, just one page, from the Trump playbook, the one about populism. They took the page that says the way to get votes is to play on voters' anger toward a group of elites, in this case, the rich. I'm sick of freeloading billionaires, says Liz Warren. Bernie Sanders regularly rails against corporate America and the billionaire class. Beto O'Rourke has talked about an economy that works only for the very few. Kamala Harris's campaign slogan is, for the people. Not all Democrats are on board, however, Joe Biden, Cory Booker, Amy Klobuchar, and Kirsten Gillibrand have so far shied away from populism. Although Democrats have historically had bouts of populism in recent decades, it's become associated with conservatives. But Democrats can lean on populism without doing it the same way as Trump, do it without the hatred and exploitation. Still, the moderates in the party worry that moving too far left with Medicare for All and the Green New Deal could lead to disaster in next year's election. But the moderates are also bringing more popular ideas like repairing and enhancing Obamacare instead of starting from scratch, and reducing prescription prices, and a more modest approach to climate change, first returning the U.S. to the Paris Climate Accord. The struggle continues among the progressives and the moderates within the Democratic Party, for however much it matters, some Democratic donors are holding out on their donations until they can see how all this shakes out. Bernie Sanders turned to a camera and said live on the Fox News channel, I guess the president watches your network a little bit. Hey, President Trump, my wife and I just released 10 years. I pay the taxes I owe. And by the way, why don't you get Donald Trump up here and ask him how much he pays in taxes? It was an early evening Fox Town Hall drawing Fox viewers and non-Fox viewers, a ratings bonanza leading two and a half million viewers into its primetime lineup of Hannity and the rest, live from the heart of Pennsylvania steel country. It was the most watched television event for a candidate ever. With a few jabs at the network, Sanders told all those viewers he hoped we could all agree that the president is a pathological liar. What was to have been a Fox News town hall turned into a debate between Sanders and Fox News, and Sanders won, challenging the ideas of the moderators and others on that channel. Sanders won big that night, addressing a crowd in a district where 16% of his supporters wound up voting for Trump instead of Clinton. As a consolation prize, Fox got boffo ratings, at least that night. But Sanders had also gone where many Democrats dare not tread. He went into the Fox's den. He had pierced the Fox News bubble, a perfect pathway to the minds of those who share the president's love of Fox News. While the Democratic National Committee is boycotting Fox for its Democratic primary debates, Sanders was rushing in to appear on what many consider state TV for Trump. More than that, Sanders, who describes himself as a democratic socialist, was on the channel that warns viewers against what it calls the creep of socialism. It was a controversial move, with many progressives wanting to punish Fox for its hateful primetime hosts. Critics of Sanders' appearance say it's one thing to go on Fox to comment, but another to help host a one-hour show in enemy territory. Sanders said somebody needs to remind voters that Trump's broken his promise to bring them better health care and remind them he did. Sanders had gone into that Fox town hall meeting fresh off a four-day swing through Trump country. And he did it seemingly with ease at age 77. Age may be a factor in the next election in both parties. If he won re-election, Donald Trump would be the oldest person ever elected president at age 73. If he finished the term, he'd be 78 when that second term ended. If Biden were to win, he'd be the oldest president at 82. The nod would go to Bernie Sanders. If he won, he'd be 78 by then. Doctors and experts on aging say a person can be a good president at 70, but not as good as a person who's at 50. Thank you to 76-year-old Robert Kaiser writing in the Washington Post for these painful realities. As many as one in four Americans over 65 has some form of cognitive impairment. Calculating a restaurant tip gets a little harder. They're not as good at multitasking, as it becomes harder to successfully divide their attention. In tests of reasoning, memory, and cognitive speed, adults in their early 20s scored around the 75th percentile, while people at age 70 scored in the 20th percentile. And the onset of dementia is not something any American wants to see in a president. There's more. Life expectancy for men in the U.S. is 78 years and change. At 75, you're statistically lucky if you have 10 years left. By those numbers, there's only a one in five chance Trump might pass before ending a second term. For Biden, it's about a one in four chance. For Sanders, a nearly one in three chance. Actual mileage may vary, of course. Wide statistics do not define any individual. There's too much ageism already. There's much to be said for experience, the wisdom of time, and it has served us well at times. So perhaps age should not be a deciding factor in a presidential candidate, but it should be a factor because it is. Bernie Sanders continues to top the public opinion polls on Democratic candidates, and he's raising the most money at age 77. We know that in 2016, the fierce determination of Sanders supporters was stoked by Russian internet trolls who were trying to split the Democratic vote to help elect Trump. It's unclear whether the Sanders campaign was aware it was being used in this way by Russians. When the Russian effort was first made public, Sanders said he knew and that his campaign had alerted the Clinton campaign. Later, Sanders' campaign manager said Sanders had misspoken and that no one in the campaign from Sanders on down knew about the unsolicited help from Russia. Sanders had soundly condemned Russia's political interference, but has done little to try to reunite his supporters with other Democrats, a sharp divide that has not faded since 2016. The wounds inflicted that year are still being felt by both moderate and Sanders supporters. But once again, in 2019, the Russians are online to exploit the fierce enthusiasm of Sanders' hardcore supporters. By 2016, Julian Assange had been holed up in the Ecuadorian embassy in London for four years, running WikiLeaks from there. He could not leave the building without being arrested after seeking asylum to avoid criminal charges in Sweden. As long as Ecuador would protect him, he could not be arrested. But Ecuador's new president doesn't care about Assange the way his predecessor did, and Assange was apparently a horrible guest and had worn out his welcome in Ecuador's embassy in London. So last week, Ecuador invited London police to enter its embassy, a place police are not allowed without permission, and permission is almost never granted. It was in that embassy in 2016 that Assange ran the WikiLeaks dump of the Democratic emails that have been freshly stolen by Russia, just in time to hurt Clinton even more in the final weeks of the campaign and just in time to distract from a recording of Trump's crude off-camera Access Hollywood comments. The Russians from whom Assange got those emails are among the baker's dozen named in Robert Mueller's first indictment. Assange himself is reportedly named in another indictment by the Mueller team. Assange has also been in touch with Trump confidant Roger Stone but Assange was arrested by London police on behalf of the U.S., where he's been wanted since 2010 when he dumped documents about the war in Afghanistan endangering American lives. He now faces charges for helping Chelsea Manning steal military secrets in that effort. Alarm bells went off naturally among journalists when Assange was arrested. Small wonder considering the assault underway on that profession, but Assange is accused of doing what ethical journalists don't do. They don't steal documents. They'll publish them if you do. But unlike Assange, real journalists don't steal. Assange had not been arrested for what he had published. He was arrested for hacking and stealing. A crowd watched in broad daylight in Dallas as a woman was beaten and kicked into unconsciousness after a minor traffic accident. What started as an attack by one man turned into mob violence as it became apparent the woman is transgender. Homophobic slurs were hurled at her between punches and kicks. She was rescued by women once the attack ended. The woman being attacked got serious injuries and was hospitalized. It was there, she told police she knows her attackers. They've arrested a 29-year-old male suspect. A group that tracks hate crime says the vast majority of the 128 transgender people killed over the past five years were women of color. Of all the people in the LGBTQ community, black transgender women are by far the most likely victims. And Texas has seven anti-LGBTQ murders under its belt, making it the deadliest state in the union with seven just last year. More than half the nearly two dozen transgender people killed in the U.S. last year died in the South. The Republican-controlled Senate has confirmed an oil lobbyist as our new Secretary of the Interior. It did so over the objections of Democrats who want investigations into accusations of ethical misconduct by now-former oil lobbyist David Bernhardt. Trump's previous Interior Secretary was forced to resign precisely because of ethics violations. As Interior Secretary, Bernhardt's job is to protect a half-billion acres of public land and coastal waters, and he says he'll be all about ethics. Democrats remain skeptical and in a position to investigate. Because of the changes in my schedule this week, Salon.com's Bob Seska doesn't have a commentary for this report, but we hope to have one from him and more in the upcoming aforementioned special report. French President Emmanuel Macron wants the Notre Dame Cathedral rebuilt in five years. Some say it'll take decades. Reality will likely fall somewhere in between, but Macron wants it presentable in five years. $300 million had already been set aside for the renovations that had apparently sparked the fire. More than a million dollars in donations have poured in. An art contest is underway to design a new spire, the 19th century one burned and collapsed to the horrified eyes of hundreds of French onlookers and millions of others around the world in real time. Drones and robots may be used to help repair and rebuild this architectural wonder that took 182 years to build in the 14th century, about 850 years ago. Macron's talked about hiring hundreds, maybe thousands of craftsmen, masons, and carpenters to restore the landmark in time for the 2024 Olympics in Paris. The bell towers made famous by a fictional hunchback survived. The 8,000 pipe pipe organ survived. Under the direction of a priest, firefighters quickly formed a human chain to pass to safety much of the church's artistic and historical artifacts, including the crown of thorns believed to have been worn by Jesus on the cross. The fire broke out during the Holy Week, leading up to Easter Sunday, with deep and painful meaning to the billions of people who've ever been inside that cathedral. It'll be six years at least before the public can be allowed inside again. Trump desperately wanted to help so he got out his phone. Perhaps flying water tankers could be used to put it out, he tweeted, not realizing that water-dropping aircraft are more effective over a wide area, not a specific building, and that the weight of the water could have caused even more destruction. Must act quickly, tweeted our president, with an exclamation point to make sure the French understood they needed to put out that fire right away, in case that hadn't occurred to them. With flying water tankers, he said. America's coolest state amphibian, kids are swallowing more stuff than ever, and three naked women at a rest stop in the final segment up next. Thank you again for using that link at buzzburbank.com for Mother's Day and for all your shopping year-round at home, school, and work. Shopping through my Amazon link helps keep this newscast going and free for the listening just go to buzzburbank.com and click the Amazon logo. You'll land on your usual Amazon page, which you can then bookmark to replace your old shopping bookmark. And once you've done that, I got a small commission from Amazon for every purchase you make. So it really helps power this free weekly report on your desktop browser that Amazon logo is in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com on your phone. It's just under the title buzzburbank news and comment. If you choose not to use my Amazon link, then please support this free and independent reporting through the PayPal donate button nearby. Thanks for all those things and for spreading the word about this effort. I don't know what your state's official amphibian is, but it can't be as cool as the one they've just chosen in Pennsylvania. It's the Eastern Hellbender, also known as the Mud Devil, Devil Dog, Ground Puppy, Allegheny Alligator, Lasagna Lizard, and Snot Otter. But the Pennsylvania House voted this week, 191 to 6, to choose, as they call it, the eastern hellbender as the state's official amphibian, an ugly grayish brown salamander that can grow up to more than two feet long. And it's also now an endangered species that is not protected by the federal government, and warmer water from climate change is killing them off. It hasn't even been a protected species for Pennsylvania, but that's more likely to change now that the eastern hellbender is the state's official amphibian. Considered one of the world's most dangerous birds, cassowaries are native to the tropical parts of Australia as well as in New Guinea, and they are one of many of the world's endangered species. They look a bit like colorful ostriches, black feathers on the body with bright blue heads trimmed with purple, orange, and pink, and topped with a brownish crest that gives them a dinosaur quality. They are big, six feet, two hundred pounds, and they are easily spooked. They are as dangerous as they are endangered. A Florida man owned one, along with a lot of other exotic birds, which he raised on his farm in Alachua County. And this past week, that bird killed him, mauled him to death, using a middle claw that rips open its prey. It was the world's first cassowary killing since 1926. Seven years ago, an Australian tourist reported being kicked by one down a seven foot cliff and into some water. In 1995, a woman reported being trapped in a tree for hours by an angry cassowary. Weeks later, she was chased through the forest by one. There were more than 150 cassowary attacks just on humans and just in Queensland, Australia. I would not understand, says an ornithologist at our National Zoo, why anyone would want to keep a cassowary as a pet, but a Florida man did, and it killed him. Dozens of medical professionals in five states have been charged with their parts in illegally prescribing more than 32 million opioid pills. Five dozen people have been indicted for passing more than 350,000 illegal prescriptions in Kentucky, Ohio. Tennessee, Alabama, and West Virginia, Appalachia, the heart of the epidemic. The indictments include 31 doctors, seven pharmacies, eight nurse practitioners, and seven other licensed medical professionals, including the aforementioned dentist. The Justice Department's investigation found doctors who traded prescriptions for sex and a dentist who pulled healthy teeth to justify his prescriptions. It was a complicated law enforcement operation because the patients often crossed state lines for doctors, pharmacies, or both. Quoting one of the lead prosecutors, if these medical professionals behave like drug dealers, you can rest assured the Justice Department is going to treat them like drug dealers. This sweep is just part of the Justice Department's new, more aggressive approach to the nation's opioid epidemic, which the Justice Department calls the deadliest drug crisis in American history. A Michigan doctor failed to properly diagnose a case of measles. You could see how it happened, since measles was wiped out in this country 20 years ago. The doctor presumed he was looking at a cough with a fever, bronchitis. The man called back the next day to say he had also broken out into a rash, and the doctor figured allergic reaction. And then the doctor remembered this new wave of measles outbreaks in not his but other parts of the country. It was the measles. A New York man had traveled from Brooklyn to Detroit to raise money for his ultra-Orthodox Jewish community and brought the virus with him. While there and along the way in his car, he infected at least 39 people. He stayed in people's homes. He has now been linked to every known case of measles in the state of Michigan. He is that state's patient zero, and it illustrates how quickly the unvaccinated who get measles can spread that dangerous disease to many people across a wide distance. Measles outbreaks generally begin in communities isolated from the society you and I know, the ultra-Orthodox Jews in Brooklyn, the Amish in Ohio, the Somalis of Minnesota, as well as groups of Eastern Europeans in Oregon and Washington State. And Michigan's patient zero has made his mark not just in Michigan, but in Baltimore County and Maryland and two counties in New York State, including his own, maybe three counties in New York. There are now well over 550 cases of measles in 20 states, the highest numbers we have seen in years, five years. While the battle against measles continues, we've learned of a new salmonella outbreak from cut melons sold under the brands of Whole Food and Kroger. It has sickened nearly 100 people in at least nine states east of the Mississippi. Salmonella catches up with a million Americans every year. Ground beef is the culprit for a new E. coli outbreak that's sickened over 100 people in a half dozen states. The contaminated ground beef was consumed in homes and in restaurants in Georgia, Kentucky, Ohio, Tennessee, Virginia, and Indiana. People are not being told to avoid ground beef, but since the source of the contaminated beef still not been found they're recommending that for now you make sure it's fully cooked to at least medium and internal temperature of 160 degrees. But tell your kids, don't eat that. These days, a hundred kids a day, a hundred kids a day are rushed to emergency rooms after swallowing part of a toy, a battery or a magnet, anything bite-sized that shouldn't be eaten. And a hundred a day is twice as many cases as in the mid-1990s. The pediatrician who did this research says the sheer numbers are cause for concern. ER visits by kids under 6 have risen more than 4% a year every year between 1995 and 2015. Why the increase? It could be just more reporting of such incidents, but the availability of smaller batteries, especially those button batteries, has also contributed to the higher numbers. More studies are being done. On the bright side, at least 90% of these kids are being treated and released. Just over half the swallowers are boys, but the girls are close behind. Your most common swallowed objects, pennies, top the list, followed by jewelry, and then batteries, 9 out of 10 of which are those button batteries. Parents may want to get down on the floor at toddler level to see what they might find and put in their mouths. After refusing to budge earlier, Fisher-Price has backed down and under public pressure in a flood of bad press, the toy company has finally recalled its rock-and-play sleepers, all of them, every model. More than 30 infant deaths involving those products have been reported in the time since they were introduced in 2009. Fisher-Price has, since the first few deaths, been resisting pleas to recall the sleepers And when the anti-regulation Trump administration took over the government's Consumer Product Safety Commission, the commission stopped pushing for that recall. It was the outcry of the public, informed by the news media, that finally made that recall happen. We haven't seen the worst of it yet when it comes to the dramatic shrinking of the brick and mortar retail industry. A new report says 75,000 stores will close over the next seven years, especially stores that sell electronics, clothing, and even furniture. Clothing stores would be hit the hardest. The investment firm UBS, which makes this projection, says we'll be doing more than a fourth of our shopping online seven years from now. We do 16% of our shopping there now. The 15,000 members of the Writers Guild of America are in their own way on strike. Many of them fired their agents this week en masse. The writers want more money, of course, but they also want the agents to adopt a new code of conduct that the writers have written. No word yet on how this will affect our upcoming movies and TV shows. Sweet Georgia Engel was the tiny voice that drew big laughs on the Mary Tyler Moore show, with recurring roles later on Coach and Everybody Loves Raymond. On Mary's show, Engel played Georgette Franklin, who would eventually marry the much louder anchorman Ted Baxter. What began as a one-time bit part earned Engel two Emmy nominations. She got two more Emmy nods in her two years on Ray Romano's sitcom. That was, by the way, her normal speaking voice, and she had the timing to go with it to make all of us laugh. People seem to like Shazam! It sold another $25 million in tickets from the U.S. and Canada this week, making it again the top movie. In fact, the rest of the screening rooms are pretty empty. Make up your own mind, browse the previews, and maybe score your tickets after clicking the Fandango logo at buzzburbank.com. If you'd like a job as a candy taster, Mars Wrigley has that job opening. You need to be in Chicago for eight to 12 weeks to taste candy and to organize public events and activities for the company's wide line of confectionery. You must be 21, have a love for Chicago, and, quoting the job listing, not be afraid to ring every doorbell in every neighborhood on Halloween. And something about keeping a potted peppermint plant alive for at least eight weeks. In Jackson, Mississippi, bowls of mashed potatoes keep showing up on cars in driveways, and on porches, front porches, and mailboxes happening in the same neighborhood where a woman put Christmas trees in potholes and someone decorated road signs. There was a brief concern the potatoes were poisoned to maybe kill animals. There are no reports of any humans eating the mashed potatoes. The only clue is that the potatoes often show up at the homes of people connected to the local Christian university. Mostly it's a mashed mystery. From the home office in Florida, 51-year-old Gerald Thornton of Newport Ritchie is behind bars after allegedly hitting one man with a lamp pole and another with a frying pan. Police say the frying pan victim was able to wrest the pan from his attacker's hands and punch Thornton in the head several times with his free hand. Thornton then allegedly turned and chased his second victim and used a lamp pole on him before being arrested for aggravated battery no explanation as to why a frying pan and lamp pole were handy. Also from the Florida files, it began when three women appeared to apply suntan lotion to themselves and each other at a Florida rest stop on I-75 near Dade City. All three women were completely nude. When a highway patrol deputy approached them, they explained they'd been staying with relatives and things had gone badly and they had no place to go. They told the deputy they were just washing up and air drying. The officer pointed out that they were using suntan lotion. Then the three naked women jumped into their car and led that officer and others on a 21-mile chase. They were eventually caught and arrested for indecent exposure, fleeing an officer and resisting arrest, which could have something to do with being slippery from the suntan lotion. An Indiana man is suing his parents for throwing out his collection, his vast collection of pornography. The man is 40 years old. He moved in with his parents in Michigan for nearly a year, about three years ago, after his divorce. He says his folks forwarded all his stuff to his new home in Muncie, but his dozens of boxes of movies and magazines were missing. His parents proudly admit they dumped the porn, especially after finding one called Big Bad Grannies." The man reported this to police as a theft, but the local prosecutor refused to pursue the case. The man says his porn collection is worth $29,000. He wants three times that in compensation, asking the court to make his folks give him $87,000. Presumably to restock. Before this week's tragic and horrible fire at Notre Dame, the French got a chance to smile during the Paris Marathon. A 34-year-old woman named Christelle broke a record set in Chattanooga, Tennessee by running her marathon in six hours, four minutes, and seven seconds in heels, high-heeled shoes. That beats the Tennessee record for high-heeled shoe marathon running by an hour and a half. Christelle says she decided to enter the race on the advice of her partner who had watched her run in heels before, in the rain. Finally, the most important thing here is that this woman is all right. In Cairo, New York, a little south of Woodstock, police, fire, and ambulance crews responded to a bad single-car crash on Silver Spur Road. The car was on fire. The woman driving it had lost control, sending it off the road and into total destruction. Fortunately, the woman suffered nothing more than a hurt leg. She told the officers everything went sideways while she was trying to kill a spider. Spider. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening. Watch for my analysis of the Mueller report at BuzzBurbank.com, and I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. Buzz 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 Buzz. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.